thank you, Pastor Pete, and uh, thank you, Parkway Baptist Church, for the privilege it is to be here uh, this week and to share the Word of God with you. Uh, I'm neither the uh, most qualified nor the expert in missions, but uh, it is a privilege to be able to share the Word of God. I do like missions, a little bit at least, and uh, I did say to Holiday Inn Express last night, so I do feel that was a joke. Come on. Anybody, is that commercial? Am I that old? I've been in Africa. Come on, give me a break, okay? That was funny when I was here last time. So uh, let's just move on. Uh, I pray this conference uh, will be a blessing to you. Uh, Our goal is that you walk away with a better understanding of missions, that you've built uh, connections that will last a lifetime uh, with all the missionaries that are here, and not just for our sake, but for the sake of understanding missions better and for the sake of, uh, of being a better participant in this thing called the Great Commission. Uh, the foundation of missions is the gospel. And the gospel is more than just the message we take. That's part of it. That's the first element. But it's also what unites us together in Christ. Uh, the gospel is our ethic. Uh, it's our roadmap for missions. So this morning, it would be appropriate for us to study exactly what the gospel is. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, We'll be studying a church uh, found that Paul wrote to. It's the church of Corinth. And this town of Corinth was a a city that, that struggled. It was a pagan town, and there were so many different pagan ideologies that the church had unfortunately been influenced by. And so often with this church, as we study this letter that Paul wrote, and even into the second letter that Paul wrote, we see these pagan ideas coming uh, to the surface. And Paul over and over again has to address these pagan ideas uh, that have influenced the church. Uh, Evidently, things had reached a, a point in this church where the whole church, or at least a part of the church, was having some questions about the resurrection. And it wasn't so much that, the, uh, that people in the church or the people in the town would have rejected resurrection altogether, because even in pagan ideology, there was a resurrection of the soul. But the Jewish idea and the Christian idea of resurrection was that there would be a bodily resurrection. And this has significant impact on the message of the gospel. And as Paul responds uh, to this church, the magnitude of the problem Uh, really becomes clear. Uh, Yes, they struggled with pride over and over again. It was pride and pride and pride. They they would use their their wealth and their influence to build up their stature uh, in the city. And Paul has to uh, respond to this in chapters 1 to 7. Chapters 8 to 10, he discusses meat offered to idols. And again, this issue relates back to, to pride. And again, he comes back to this serious doctrinal issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and really the impact of the resurrection on Christianity. Verse 12 of chapter 15 tells us, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And that's really the core issue that Paul is responding to here. Let's take a look at our passage this morning, the verse first. Uh, 11 verses of chapter 15. If you're able this morning, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 
Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he was seen of me also, as of one, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that the gospel would permeate our thoughts, that we would understand very clearly what the gospel is, how we trust in this gospel, how we are saved, Father, and how the gospel provides this foundation for missions that we so desperately need this morning as we begin this conference. Thank you for your word, and may our hearts be in tune to what you have for us this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We see a few different issues at hand in this passage. Uh, we need to understand these things as we begin. First of all, Christ truly raised from the dead. Christ truly raised from the dead. I hope this isn't the case, but I realize that there could be some of you here this morning that are questioning this, that you're questioning whether or not Christianity is real or not. Is God real? And this maybe is not the main thought that Paul is addressing here in this passage, but there are certainly evidences presented in this passage to confirm the truthfulness of Christianity. So this morning, if you're struggling with this idea, is God real? Is the gospel real? Am I really saved if I believe in this thing we call the gospel? I, this message is for you, and we will respond uh, to some of those questions this morning. The second issue is that the gospel is based upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's a powerful statement right there. The gospel is based upon this reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When I was in Togo, we spoke French, and uh, I had some sayings that were very, very important to me. One of them was, pas de café, pas de français, okay? Translated into English, that means no coffee, no French, all right? Let's just get some things straight. Jeremy doesn't speak French in the morning before he's had at least one cup of coffee, all right? And I didn't teach classes even in the afternoon without my shot of espresso or another cup of coffee. It was essential to what I was doing, right? Absolutely essential. Pas de café, pas de français. There was another one that I used very often. Pas de résurrection, pas d'espérance. No resurrection, 
no hope. And that's so true. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Uh, if you study the early church, and particularly this, uh, even before the early church, uh, the disciples, the apostles, after they saw Jesus Christ, something happened in their lives. They were motivated by this resurrection. They had hope uh, to spread their faith, to go out and, and boldly share what they had learned. It made sense to them. They had hope for eternity because a man named Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, the very Son of God rose from the dead. And then the third issue that we need to understand this morning is that the resurrection should motivate us to go. The Bible makes no distinction between goers and stayers. The only difference is that some go further than others. If you believe that Jesus truly rose from the dead, then you should be motivated to go and to share this message with others, with those around you, whether that be in Lakeland or whether that be around the world. If the gospel is true, then we are, pro, uh, we are compelled to proclaim it. Christianity is a religion of faith, but this faith is not blind. This faith is not blind. In our passage, we, th we see three statements, and each are supported by an evidence. And as we go through our text this morning, I'm going I'm to give you each of these statements, and I'll give you an evidence that supports that statement in the passage. Look, first of all, in verses 1 and 2. We see that the gospel saves us. If you're taking notes, the first blank there, the first main point is that the gospel saves us. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, but or by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church to respond to a list of questions that they had. Either they had sent by uh, a messenger, audible uh, uh, questions, or a list written down on paper they had sent him, and Paul had responded in what we now call 1 Corinthians to each of these questions. Things were not pretty. The church had some big issues, as we've already alluded to. And Paul says, listen, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. They should have remembered this, okay? Uh, but they had evidently forgotten or they needed a reminder of the importance of this gospel. There was a clear disconnect between what this church supposedly believed and what they practiced. Write this down in your notes. The gospel changes who we are and how we live. Let me repeat that. The gospel changes not only who we are. We are in Christ when we believe in the gospel. But that's more than just something that's written down somewhere, maybe in the front cover of your Bible. It's the gospel also changes how we live. How we live. That's so important. The gospel changes not only our identity, but our, our manner of life. The gospel is not, I repeat, not a get-out-of-hell-free card. We don't just pray a prayer to make God happy and go about our jolly way. That's a perversion of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And by our faith in the gospel, we are placed in Christ, and the Spirit of God indwells us and changes us. And, and I'm going to expound upon this definition of the gospel and, and, and the concept of faith shortly. So bear with me as we go through our passage, we'll do that. But we need to understand that the gospel changes who we are and how we live. Let's talk about faith and salvation here for a minute, since we've brought these things up. Notice that Paul says you are saved by your faith. Your faith. He says something similar in the book of Ephesians. For by grace are ye saved through, help me out, faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If 1 Corinthians 15 presents the abridged version of the gospel, we could consider the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, the unabridged version of the gospel. And if you've ever studied the book of Romans in detail, you understand just how in-depth Paul writes about uh, this gospel. Chapters 1, verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans, Paul discusses our condemnation. And oh, are we ever condemned? We are just a little bad. We are completely bad. There, there is nothing in us that is good. Romans 3 verse 11 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Chapters 3 verse 21 through chapter 5 verse 21, Paul talks about our justification. And this justification comes by faith. Consider a few verses this morning. Romans chapter 3 verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, referring to Greeks and Jews or Gentiles and Jews. Uh, a few verses later, chapter 3, verse 25, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Verse 28, same chapter. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. Chapter 4, verse 3, what saith the scripture? Abraham believed or he had faith in God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What about uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Say, Jeremy, is this saying that we have to verbally confess something to be saved? Well, no, look in the context. Paul is going back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, Deuteronomy chapter 30 as figures of speech to compare legal righteousness in the Old Testament to the righteousness that comes by faith. He's not saying that you had to say a certain formula with your mouth in order to find salvation. He's just simply saying we are saved by faith. And I hope that's incredibly clear to each of us this morning, that we are saved by faith. The verses that I read to you from Ephesians and Romans should make this clear. We are not saved by a prayer, we are saved by faith. And yes, maybe you expressed your faith through a prayer, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing that or critiquing that. It's our faith, though, that saves us. 
In the beginning, I told you that I would give you three statements with supporting evidences. The first statement is this. We are saved by our faith in the gospel. Key word is faith. Our faith in the gospel. Now, I like to give you the evidence of that, but I'm, I need a cliffhanger, okay? So uh, if I give you all the evidences up front, you're going to maybe close your Bible or something and go to sleep. Not really. I'm just kidding. But I'm going to save the evidence of this until the end, and I think you'll understand why when we get to the end. Uh, so what, what about this faith? What, what do we have to believe in to be saved? In other words, what is the, the, the content of this faith? We see next of all that Christ died. Christ died. You know, we preachers tend to express the gospel in three parts, death, burial, and resurrection. And that's not wrong. That's good. That's true. But I, I'm not convinced that uh, that's a complete picture of what the gospel actually is according to this passage. Uh, we're going to look in verse 3 now. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. The very first part of the gospel is that Christ died. If Christ didn't die, there is no resurrection. Okay, The Bible teaches us that Christ is the Son of God, who was incarnated as the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. He lived a sinless life and died upon the cross to meet both the just demands of the penalty of our sin and his very nature of God. And you say, Jeremy, I don't have any idea what you just said. I, I anticipated that. Let me break this down a little bit. The Bible tells us in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? Simply that what you deserve because of your sin is death. But God is gracious, you say. How could a, a gracious and loving God condemn somebody to death? Eternal separation from God. Yes, it's true that God is gracious. You're correct. It's true that God is loving. But he is also just, or another word that we can use there is righteous. And let me ask you this. If God just let sin slide, if he just said, well, you know, I'm a gracious guy. I'm a nice guy. I do this sometimes with my son, and I shouldn't, right? But, well, you know, I don't feel like disciplining right now. I'm just going to let that slide. I'm going to act like I didn't see it. If God did that, we would be in trouble, right? Because that would change his very nature, who he is. So God had to, by his very nature, deal with this issue of sin. The Bible says, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did he die? He died to, to cover the penalty of our sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, that is, he's fulfilled his own righteous demands. He's not just letting sin slide because he is a righteous God or he is a just God. Through the death of Christ, he not only fulfilled his own justice, his own righteousness, the last part of that verse says, in the justifier of him who which believeth in Jesus. 
That's a powerful thought right there, that through the death of Christ, God not only justifies himself, but he justifies us also through our faith in this gospel. Christ died to justify his own righteousness and to justify us through faith in Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning. We're saying that Christ died. What is the evidence that somebody has died? Certainly, maybe the coroner goes in. I don't know about here in Lakeland. The most popular, most well-known name in all of Macon, Georgia, is Leon Jones. Anybody know who Leon Jones is besides my wife, Pastor P? He's been around for a long time, right? He's a coroner, okay? And uh, that's because Macon's kind of a rough town, all right? So you hear about the coroner on a regular basis, Leon Jones on the news talking about somebody's death, okay? Uh, it's sad, but it's true, unfortunately. Certainly the coroner goes in, and the coroner or somebody declares that this person has died, a doctor or something. But what do we do after that? Think back to Bible times. What would they have done? You're going to kick yourself when you hear the answer to this. They bury the person, okay? It's, it's obvious. It's logical, right? It, it, it was a little bit of a trick question. Yeah, sorry. So the evidence that somebody has died is that he's been buried, okay? Now, that might seem elementary. That might seem simple. But when you consider the fact that it it demonstrates, it, it confirms, it provides evidence to the fact that Jesus truly died. How do we know that? He was buried. First part of the gospel is the death of Christ. What's the evidence? How do we know that, that he truly died? Well, he, he was buried. Look in verse 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I receive, also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, in verse 4, and that he was buried. The evidence of the death of Jesus Christ is that he was buried. First part of the gospel is the death. The evidence of this part, of the, of the death, is the burial. There was people in the city of Corinth called the Docetists, and they didn't believe that Jesus was really human. And if he wasn't really human, then it wasn't really possible for him to die. And if it wasn't possible for him to die, then he wasn't the son of man, or he didn't actually pay for this penalty of sin. So we can respond to that very clearly by saying, he was buried. And there's a lot of other philosophies, a lot of other people that that argue points and say, well, he didn't really die. He was just in sleep. Well, he was buried. He was buried. The evidence that somebody died. We are saved by our faith in the gospel. I'll give you the evidence for that at the end. Statement two, Christ died. The evidence of this is that he was also buried. And, And even though Christ died, if we leave the passage here, There isn't too much incredible about his life, right? Because a lot of people came, and a lot of people lived, and a lot of people lived moral lives, and a lot of people died. But if that's the end of the story, what is there really to talk about? Because that's just average. That's just ordinary. The story continues. We also see that Christ arose. Christ arose. I said that the first part of the gospel is the death, and the burial proves this. The second part of the gospel is the resurrection. Verse 4, and that he was buried, of course, and that he 
rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He didn't just rise again a few minutes after they put him in the grave. That might kind of fuel this fire. They didn't actually die. Like, well, he was only in there for a few minutes. How, how long was it? Three days. Three days. I believe this supports the reality of the death once again. He didn't just sleep. He was in the tomb for three days. He was dead. I believe he was crucified uh, and buried on Friday. Or he was buried on Friday, and then he rose again on Sunday, the third day. The reason for that is that in the Jewish um, idea or, or, or culture, any part of the day represented the whole day. So we talk about three days is an indication of Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now, if you disagree with me on that, that's okay. That's not really that important of an issue to, to argue. But, but, but the fact is he was dead for three days. And Paul also says this was according to the scriptures, or it was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. It wasn't just something that happened, and we're like, hey, let's write about this and call it Christianity. This was something that was prophesied about centuries beforehand. And then it came to pass. The resurrection was clearly prophesied throughout the Bible. I mentioned that without the resurrection, there is no hope to Christianity. And it's true, our message is void if Christ never raised from the dead. So did he? Is there evidence to support this idea that we've presented to you this morning that Christ rose from the dead? Okay, sure, he died, he was buried. We bury our dead. That's what we do. Everybody that dies, we bury is there evidence that he rose from the dead? And I would say overwhelming evidence. Paul tells us that he raised from the dead. And what's the evidence of this? He was seen. He was seen. Look in, in verse 5. And he was seen of Cephas. That was Peter. And of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Not just, not just a few people here. A lot of people that knew him well of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some have fallen asleep. Some had died even at the point of Paul writing this letter, but many were still alive of these, of these witnesses. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And Paul gives us this huge list here, this significant list of all these witnesses that saw Christ after his death. And notice that these are people that knew Christ well. These weren't just people that are like, yeah, I saw Jesus one time. I, I heard him teach. And then I saw, you know, later I saw this guy that looked like Jesus. I thought they had crucified. No, these were people that intimately knew Jesus. These were people that, that, that had talked to Jesus. And, and, and in many cases, they had spent years with Jesus. They knew who he was. This was not accidental identification. In uh, Togo, there was a story there's a, it's a legend, really, of a, of a boy. They call him the uh, Jesus of Depong. Depong is the northern city uh, in Togo, the northernmost large city in Togo. And uh, the, the, the story goes that this boy died. And there's a story behind all that, not important, but he died. And then they say he came back to life. Well, what really happened is that his good friend, who had very similar features to him, went and lived in his room. He said, yeah, my friend's dead. I can live in his, in his room, his place that he's rented, you know, for, for free. So his friend goes and his friend is living in this place. And after, you know, a week or so of confusion, and this literally spread like wildfire 
through the country, anywhere in Togo. You could go somewhere and mention the Jesus of Depong, and they would kind of light up like, yeah, I heard about this, you know? And uh, this, was, this was something that went around, and, and even to this day, we could talk about the Jesus of Depong. And people knew uh, this story. People thought they saw the real deal, but in the end, they realized it wasn't true. Why? Because the people that knew this kid that had died best knew that this other guy, this imposter, wasn't actually the real deal. But with Jesus, uh, what was the evidence that he truly raised from the dead? He was seen. He was seen. And unlike this guy in Togo, there were no few witnesses to support this resurrection. There were testimonies of people that knew him best that said he rose from the dead. If you're here today and you're doubting the authenticity of the resurrection, let me add one other evidence uh, that is biblical uh, to this. And, and if you, know, you have questions, I want to talk to you later about this. We'll, we'll chat some more about it. But according to the Bible and the Gospels, who were the first witnesses to see Jesus after he rose? The women. What's significant about that? Women were not acceptable witnesses in early Jewish culture, okay? Jesus elevated the status of women, okay? But understand, in the culture of that day, women were not acceptable witnesses. If you were going to make a case for something being true, you would not say, well, let me bring you know, my, my wife up, and she's going to you know, testify of what she saw, because they would reject that. But no, she's not a legitimate witness. You couldn't take a lady with you to court and testify that so-and-so had hit your car, you know, in, in such-and-such parking lot and was guilty and deserved to pay you money or something like that. It, it just wouldn't fly. Yet the early account, the first account, the first witnesses of people who saw Jesus were women. If you're going to make up something and you're going to call it Christianity, you're going to write this book called the Bible, and you're like, ah, you know, I need to come up with this story to really elevate our hero. And we're going to call him Jesus. And, uh, you know, he's going to die, and then he's going to come back to life, oh, we'll say three days later. And then we're going to have people that say they saw him. You would not have used women as witnesses. That was scandalous. Yet that's what we see. What do you say? What are you saying, Jeremy? Does that make the Bible scandals? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying this: that the very fact that they weren't trying to sugarcoat or make this a stronger argument than it really was, they're just saying, "Look, people saw him, and the first people were women." That strengthens the argument that Christ truly rose from the dead should help you to understand that this story of Jesus in the Bible, and specifically his resurrection, is a story that we can accept and believe in. So the gospel is two parts. We've seen the death, and that's evidenced by the burial. We've seen the resurrection, and that's evidenced by the fact that he was seen. By the way, I would say that the gospel is two parts, the death and resurrection, presented as well with two evidences, but that's not important as much as you realize that these things are evidences that support the truth of what the Bible says. So statement one, we're saved by our faith in the gospel, evidence forthcoming. Statement two, Christ died, he was buried. I'm sorry, statement two, Christ died, evidence he was buried. 
Statement three, Christ arose and evidence four, or the evidence that followed that, you understand what I'm saying here, he was seen. And now at this point, I need to kind of step back and give you this evidence for that first statement. I'm so grateful that Paul mentions the burial and the appearances of Christ as evidences for the gospel. We see one final witness that we didn't already mention in our passage. Our final point this morning is changed lives. I told you that the gospel changes not only who we are, but how we leave, live, leave, live, excuse me. I need some more coffee. The gospel teaches us how to live. Romans chapter 1 through 11 teaches us in great detail about the gospels I've mentioned to you. Chapters 12 to 16 teaches us how to live. If you consider chapter 12, verse 1, it's this transitional verse from the gospel into the gospel ethic. He says, I beseech you, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. What, what is this? Chapters 1 through 11. Based on everything that I've told you in chapters 1 through 11 about the gospel, the unabridged version of the gospel, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The gospel changes who we are, Romans chapter 1 through 11, and the gospel changes how we live, Romans chapter 12 through 16. Paul also tells us that someone who is in Christ, who has placed their faith in Christ, is a new creature. We, we change. We're, we're different. Our, our desires are different. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What does this mean? Look again at, at Paul, our final witness of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. Paul says, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not me to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, I saw Jesus, but it wasn't supposed to happen like that. I'm an apostle, but I'm, I, I'm not really, or I'm, not, I'm not worthy of this. He said, of all the apostles, I was the one that, that wasn't intended to be. He said uh, in verse, uh, verse 8, he says, as one born out of due time. The idea, the image there is honestly an unwanted child. A child that wasn't wanted, the parent didn't want that child, perhaps the parent wanted to terminate that child. At the same time, he was alive, he was there. And he gives that illustration for his apostleship. I was the one that was unwanted. Nobody wanted me as an apostle. But God did. And because of that, I am an apostle. But he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Why? Because he persecuted the church of God. If you go into Galatians, he talks a little bit more about this, and certainly if we go back into the book of Acts, we see some of these, these persecutions. What happened with Paul? Paul was the enemy, or Saul at that time, the enemy of God. He hated the church. He hated Christianity. He hated Christians. And all Paul wanted to do was to destroy these people. And then one day on the road to Damascus, everything changed, right? Paul saw the risen Lord. Paul saw 
the risen Savior. And he placed his faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I wasn't worthy. I saw him, but I wasn't worthy. What happened to Paul? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 says, But by the grace of God, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. In this verse, the grace of God is the graciousness of God in giving us the gospel, the gracious gift of the gospel, or the good news of Jesus Christ that we've been talking about, the death and the resurrection. By, by my faith in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says, I am what I am. Who is Paul? Persecutor of the church. Who is Paul now? Apostle. I am what I am. The gospel has changed Paul. I am what I am by the grace of God, by the gospel, by my faith in this gospel. The gospel changed who Paul was and how he lived. What's the greatest evidence that Christ died? The burial. What's the greatest evidence that Christ rose? He was seen. What's the greatest evidence that the gospel is true? We go back to that first statement. If we are saved by our, or we are saved by our faith in the gospel, or we could say that the gospel is true, the greatest evidence of that is a changed life. Paul's life changed, did yours. When you placed your faith in the gospel, is that evidenced by a changed life? Are you different now? I'm not saying that you have everything together, that you're a perfect individual. That's not at all what I'm saying here. We're still sinners. We're growing each day. We still listen to the old master sometimes. But is your life different? What am I or I should say the first convert in our church is a guy by the name of Alon. And uh, Alon lived across the street from where we built the church. And as we were building the church, he later told me that uh, he thought, wow, I'm going to destroy that place. I hate God. I hate Christianity. In fact, he had been seeking truth for many years. His dad was a charlatan. And uh, it was expected that he was going to follow in his father's footsteps in the family. He had been a Muslim for a short time, didn't find truth. He tried the Catholic Church, couldn't find truth. Tried many other churches, couldn't find truth. And he said, all I want to do is destroy this church. But he's like, well, you know, I should go visit this church one day. He came, and he heard the gospel the, very, the second week that we had started the church. The church had been in existence. And uh, I followed up with Alon. I would go by his house on Saturday and uh, I would share the gospel with him again. I'd answer his questions that he would ask me. This went on for probably a month or two. Built a good relationship with Alon. And one day, I noticed that Alon was different. You see, because before, I was going by his house and kind of twisting his arm a little bit. Hey, let's go out and invite some other people to church. And he told me later that he didn't want to do that. This is a missionary, you know. He, he asked me, so I had to go, he would say. But that changed. 
No longer did he, did he oppose that, but he, he wanted to do that. No longer did, did he kind of just kind of stroll into church because he felt like that's what he should do because this you know, missionary would come and visit him, but, but he wanted to come and do that. Alon's life had changed. I knew that he had placed his faith in the gospel. He hadn't told me that yet. Eventually he did. He said, Pastor, I placed my faith in the gospel. And I took him to this passage that we had gone over so many times. I said, Alon, I knew that because the greatest evidence that the gospel is true is a changed life. And that grew his faith. That grew my faith through seeing that in his life. We are saved by our faith in the gospel. And the evidence of that is a changed life. Christ died, he was buried. Christ arose, he was seen. Let me close with a couple of questions for you. Do you believe that God and the gospel are truth? I gave you three issues at the beginning. And this is kind of a reflection on that. If you're on you know, the verge this morning, you're not really sure if, if you believe this thing called Christianity, why don't you chat with somebody at the end? Chat with me, chat with Pastor P, chat with somebody else. Do you believe that God and the gospel are truth? Have you placed your, number two, your saving faith in the gospel? I might add that saving faith is a lot more than academic faith. A lot of people believe in God, as in they have academic knowledge of God. They've maybe read the Bible. They've heard Bible stories, perhaps growing up even at church, even a good church. But they've never come to the point where they are willing to trust in the death and resurrection for their salvation. That's saving faith. It's actionable faith. It's you being willing to trust in God to save you. And number three, does, the, does God's grace in your life motivate you to share your faith with others? The fact that God loves us, that he sent his son to die for us, and that his son rose from the dead to give us hope should motivate us to share the greatest message ever told. I'm not the kind of guy that makes emotional pleas for people to do certain things. I'm just going to simply leave the truth of God's word with you this morning and prayerfully in your hearts. The gospel is true. There's no doubt in my mind that the gospel is true. I hope there's no doubt in your mind that the gospel is true. What will you do with it now? The gospel is true. What will you do with it?